0: It's very difficult for the platforms to do a good job of it. We talk about how content moderation is so tricky to get right in different contexts, different communities, countries, languages, like it's so difficult to get it right. It's impossible for a single platform that is primarily based in one place um, to be able to do this effectively across the entire world. And so I think where we have landed now, it makes more sense for users to be able to have more control
1: I'm Quinta Juressic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. We talk a lot on this show about the responsibility of major tech platforms when it comes to content moderation. But what about problems that the platforms can't or won't fix? Tracy Chow's solution involves going around platforms entirely. And creating tools that give power back to users to control their own experience. She's the engineer behind Block Party, an app that allows Twitter users to protect themselves against online harassment and abuse. It's a fine tuned solution to a problem that a lot of people on Twitter struggle with, especially women, and particularly women of color. This week on the show, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Tracy about her work developing Block Party. And how the persistent lack of diversity in Silicon Valley contributes to an environment where users have little protection against harassment. We also talked about what it's like working with the platforms that Block Party and other apps like it are seeking to improve. And we discussed what content moderation problems these kinds of user driven tools might help solve, and which they won't. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd. Is Block Party the future of content moderation? We wanted to just start with the spiel that you've probably given a million times before. What is Block Party and what's the problem you're trying to solve with it? And how does it work?
0: Yeah, with Block Party, we're building consumer tools for online safety and anti-harassment. The big vision is that when people go online, they should be able to be in control of that experience and feel safe. We have obviously a very acute problem right now of harassment uh, we see on certain platforms. Um, so starting off with that problem, helping people to be in control of that experience, kind of tamp it down. Right now we're on Twitter, uh, looking to expand to other platforms. On Twitter right now, the way it would work is you sign up for Block Party, link your Twitter account, set some filtering rules. So you could say things like, I don't want to hear from anybody that has Fewer than 100 followers and just created their account, or you could say I only want to hear from people that are verified accounts, or followed by people I follow, or people i interacted with recently. And based on these filtering rules, Block Party will run in the background to grab all your mentions and filter out anything that doesn't pass your rules. So those users would get muted. You'd be able to use Twitter as normal, whether it's on mobile or web, and. Just see a lot less of that noisy stuff. All the things that have been filtered, those users have been muted. Um, they get put into a folder that you can check on Block Party. So in some ways, it's like a spam folder for your email inbox, except it's a bit more configurable. You can kind of change the rules at any time. You can set it to higher filtering when maybe you don't want to interact with the world so much, um, or you can lower it if you're feeling more open and wanting to engage with random people on the internet. And because everything has been filtered out into this other folder, you can still go check it so you don't have to have FOMO about like, you know, what if there was something good that I might have missed or if I just want to know what was happening? Like, it's still possible um, to go see that and take action later if necessary you know, useful in the positive cases where you know, maybe something didn't need to be filtered. There was like an interesting message you wanted to respond to or in the very negative cases of like needing situational awareness about a harassment attack or something like that. There's a few reasons why it is useful to have things filtered out into that other folder. Uh, in addition, because there's this other folder, you can ask for help from other people. Um, If you want somebody else to look through all your mentions for you, like the ones that are kind of untrusted ones, they can help you to sort through that. Uh, this is something that we had seen like in the community. There's a lot of interest from your friends, your supporters, your fans, when they want to be able to help. Um, but... On a lot of platforms right now, there's really nothing they can do except watch you get harassed or you know be on the receiving end of a of a pylon. Um, and in this way, we enable other people to help out. And so we have this vision for Blog Party that is really just making the internet better and safer, and you know helping to realize that promise of the internet where everybody can participate and like fully realize these benefits.
2: I think a little bit of helpful context here is. The experience of being subject to online harassment for people that blessedly haven't had that experience. I mean, I myself have had the briefest of Brushes with the tiniest little bit of a Twitter stormlet, and it it really wasn't fun. But I I think it's nothing compared to to some of the things that you've experienced. Um, and if it's all right, I was hoping you might be able to talk a little bit about that experience because you know some people who who haven't had that experience or know anyone that has had that experience might go, well, why don't you just not read it or develop a thicker skin or just sort of brush it off? Like, what is it about being subject to harassment that makes this kind of Tool necessary, and how did your experience lead to the work uh, that you're currently doing?
0: Yeah, I would say there's a pretty wide range of things that we might classify as harassment, and then there's also things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily call harassment, but are just things that you don't want to deal with. And so, my experience, I've had everything from the sort of low severity, high prevalence stuff, so just like drive-by trolling, guarded variety, sexism, racism, those kinds of comments from random people that I don't care about all the way to really dedicated stalking um, harassment sometimes like coordinated attacks um, and so those are very high severity events but they don't happen all the time like they're, they're lo- lower prevalence but you know that whole range can be very upsetting or traumatizing in different ways um from the the side the side of the spectrum that's more like just, you know, casual insults or trolling bullying um i think that's a lot of the, the the stuff that people would say like just ignore it like it's not a big deal um just like don't check your mentions or log off and i would respond to that by drawing an analogy to like offline harassment so if you think about like you're walking down the street and somebody shouts something at you or catcalls you or is really nasty in some way even if you know that They are unlikely to cause you harm um, and you're going to pass them and they're probably not going to follow you. It still can be very upsetting. It can throw you off if you're thinking about something like it obviously disrupts uh, your train of thought, depending on how aggressive they are or how rude um, they are. It can make you just kind of like fixate on there, think about like how upsetting that was for easily a few minutes or hours or even days if it was really bad. And so even like one of these instances can be very upsetting. And you think about what the sort of consumer web scale enables, where you can have a lot of people pile on at once. If let's say you have a tweet that goes slightly viral and is getting more attention, like you can be getting hundreds or thousands of these sorts of replies in a short period of time. It's very overwhelming. (laughs) You think about all these people who are shouting at you or throwing insults at you. And even if you know that they're not important, like I think Everybody has had some experience with somebody saying something to you that you know is wrong, but it's still upsetting. <laughs> uh, like it's an insult or something. Like it feels, it feels really bad. Um, and when you think about trying to navigate a space, whether it's, you know, the street outside or it's a digital space like Twitter, you want to be able to go about that space without this fear of interruption, disruption. Um, some of the responses I've gotten from folks who aren't experienced with this sort of problem have been like, just like, stop using Twitter. Like, why don't you just like get offline? And to me, that's as ridiculous as saying like, just don't go out on the street anymore. If you've gotten street harassment, like just, just don't go out. It's like, just stay in your apartment. It's like, no, like I want to be able to participate in this world. Like I should be able to walk to the store without getting harassed. I should be able to go on Twitter and see what people are talking about without getting harassed. So like, that's kind of how I think about that problem. And then obviously you get the like very extreme cases where people are targeting the harassment coordinating and attacks um so i've gotten like just waves of attacks from reddit where they organized on on reddit i did an ama there a couple of years ago and i guess talking about building anti-harassment software is um cause for getting harassed so thousands of trolls from reddit organized and were attacking me it landed on 4chan and then those people came to harass me twitter ended up being the the one kind of safe place because I have Block Party writing on my Twitter account, so that was great. But everything else was terrible. Like all the other surface area I have online, uh, they were creating accounts with my name and photo to post spam and abuse. Um, just like really, truly very awful, and very upsetting. Um, so it's the kind of thing that was like kind of destabilizing for me for days and weeks um, because it was so awful like anywhere I wanted to go online there's this fear of like oh, if I check my email there might be crap in there um if I want to go on any of these services like there's probably some hate or abuse and I also use these platforms to get the sort of positive and force-fed and like support from people who aren't bad right? like was, my networks are online too so like the same platforms I use to get the good stuff we're getting flooded with the negative and so it was very frustrating to not be able to access like the support networks when I was receiving all the the negativity. So does that answer your question? A bit of the color of like
2: what happens? No, it definitely does. And I'm really sorry that you've had all of that experience. And I guess this is one of the purest examples of making lemonade out of lemons. So um, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful that you fueled that energy into uh, a product that can help others. I'm wondering, I mean, because this is content moderation and because this is 2022 and because this is the internet and you have the word block in your name, I'm wondering if, you know, apart from just, just log off or just, you know, don't use Twitter or anything like that, whether you get people who tell you that this is, you know, uh, censorship or something along those lines. Um, and so, you know, I just, because it feels a necessary part of these debates these days, like to ask you, you know, <laughs> why do you hate free speech or what is it about this product that that, that isn't censorship?
0: Yeah, I think one thing that is more distinct about our product versus some of the other solutions that people might be working on are that they're very much individual preferences that you get to set. So the way I would put it is sure, you can have your freedom of speech and I also have my freedom to not listen to you. Like I, I, there's no obligation for me to like keep standing on that street corner where you're like shouting in my ear that I suck. Like I can walk away. Go ahead and like keep shouting if you want to have that freedom of speech. Uh, we do get some of that pushback usually from trolls about how like this is a useless product and terrible. I'm like, well, like, you're just proving the point. Like I uh, would like to not be able to listen to all this you know, trash that you're hurling my way. But because we are kind of user level um, it's pretty different from platform wide settings. Um, so we're not trying to determine some standard line where if you cross it, it's for, It's bad. It must be banned or whatever it is. Like this is just user preferences and you can change them at any time as well. And we see users will do that. And it kind of reflects like my personal experience where sometimes like I'm pretty open, like I'm in a good emotional state and like I am open to engaging with more randomness and other times where my emotional reserves are spent and like I don't want to be engaging with a lot of people, but it's not limiting anybody's ability to speak.
1: There's another aspect of this that I think touches on your point about individual preferences that, you know, one of the common criticisms of technology platforms that we often see is that they allow users to sort of create a filter bubble where they select only a very limited slice of the world and what they want to see. And there's algorithmic curation that sort of further narrows that experience of the world, which... Um, the people who are making this argument, say, contributes to polarization. I'm, I'm curious how you think about block party in relationship to that criticism. Is that something that you worry
0: about at all? It is something we think about. I think more of the issue with this theoretical problem with filter bubbles is more with algorithmic home feed and timelines. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But I think in practice, what they've seen is People who are, are online a lot more actually get exposed to a wider variety of viewpoints than people who aren't. And so like a lot of this stuff is you could debate it in a sort of theoretical sense, but then you also have to see like what happens in practice. So with block party and what our functionality does right now, it actually makes it more possible for people to engage with different viewpoints where like just for example, like we've spoken to some female politicians who have said like they want to be able to engage with their constituencies, like especially if they're running for office, like they want to be able to uh, use online platforms to reach people and like share their opinions on different issues. But some of these women will say like, I just get so much abuse in my mentions or like comments. Like, I can't I can't look at them at all, uh, even though there are some legitimate questions in there and I want to be able to engage with those that are in good faith because it's so overwhelmed by the abuse. I can't even look at it. And so that actually has the effect of like tamping down potentially like very useful discourse. And our opinion is that like in practice right now, like if we're seeing that people can actually speak more freely on topics that otherwise would cause them harassment that would force them to like not be able to speak anymore. If we can provide these protections anyway, we'll to, to actually speak on more issues and also to like filter some of the responses so that they can engage with the most interesting ones are the good faith ones, like that, actually raises that level of discourse and helps to uh, counteract some of the, you know, the alleged issues with filter bubbles. That being said, like this technology, all this technology can be used in different ways, and like different behaviors may emerge. And so, I think it's very important to keep an eye on like what are these technologies actually being used for, and how are they being used, and all that can change over time. Like some of the behaviors like coordinated inauthentic behaviors, like on Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. Like those are new things that came about more recently. They weren't all there when the initial functionality of the news feed and groups first came out. It is important to keep an eye on what is happening and how are people actually using these things.
2: So I want to pause a little bit on the user's control here, because I think that's one of the things that's really distinctive about this product and sort of innovative and important in this space because, you know, we're stuck in these intractable conversations in content moderation land where it's, you know, what are the right rules and, you know, are platforms, you know, legitimate in making these decisions and drawing the lines and things like that. And so there's been this trend away from saying, well, maybe the platforms shouldn't have all that power in the first place and we should redistribute power back to users to control their own experience and and make the decisions and draw the lines for themselves and your product is good example of one of the tools that can help, can can do that kind of thing where, you know, a Twitter user can decide for themselves what content they want to see and what content they want to engage with. Like it's an example of what's been called middleware, um, where it's a, a, a piece of software that provides services on top of other platforms and applications. And in, in some ways that seems really intuitive and a really promising way forward. I'm curious though, if you feel like your product you, you kind of wish your product didn't have to exist, if that makes sense. So you wouldn't have to make something like Block Party if big tech did their job properly. Or do you see this as something that is beneficial to be made by a third party? That it is better to, you know, let the platforms sort of set baselines maybe and then to have a diversity of products that can sit on top of those platforms and allow users to sort of opt in to certain different kinds of experiences. How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think in some ways, what you said about, like, I wish that this product didn't have to exist is true. Um, Like, I wish that the platforms hadn't evolved in such a way that all this bad behavior is not just condoned, but sometimes encouraged. But I think that's a very alternate universe that we it's very different from where we are right now. Like it would have had to require many different changes in how platforms were built, how decisions were made uh, over the last like 10, 15 years. I think given where we are now and sort of the standards around like how open everything is where anybody can post, create accounts, contact anybody else, like kind of where the norms have evolved. I think it now makes sense to have a whole separate layer of like middleware or whatever you want to call it um, where users can have more choice. And so I think like in this world, There's so much of like messiness. It's very difficult for the platforms to do a good job of it. We talk about how content moderation is so tricky to get right in different contexts, different communities, countries, languages. Like it's so difficult to get it right. It's impossible for a single platform that is primarily based in one place um, to be able to do this effectively across the entire world. And so I think where we have landed now, it makes more sense for users to be able to have more control. I think about it a bit like consumer choice. Um, and so while it's tricky to talk about choice in terms of the platforms, like it's there, there's that lock in with social networks where like you want to be where your friends are. So it's hard to just like flip directly to like a competitive network where your friends aren't. Um, but there can be more choice in the ways that people interact with the platforms. And I think. The path forward, what makes sense to me is like the platforms open up to the extent that like there can be this developer ecosystem building on top of the platforms where like, you know, the platforms may still control information. Like here are the users, here are their posts, um, here are some of the connections, but users can engage with it uh, in a way that's much more under their own control rather than what the platforms have decided. And the more that it, we kind of see like the platforms are having a lot of issues around like, having to make editorial decisions, like they would rather not, it's hard to get it perfectly right. And it's going to be a lot of people upset either way. Uh, And so there are places where I've spoken to people at platforms where like, we would really rather not be in this business of making editorial decisions. Like we don't want to decide who gets a verified check mark, but right now we kind of have to, like, we don't know any other way around it right now. We don't want to be labeling misinformation, but like the problem is so bad. In some cases, we will do it. Uh, but we'd really rather not have to make these editorial decisions. And that also applies to content moderation or um, user moderation, like you know, figure out who is allowed to be on the platform or not. Um, and so I think that path forward is really like empowering people to bring their middleware.
1: So you made a really interesting point in your Block Party newsletter, which listeners can find on your website, mm-hmm. that I think touches on that, where you wrote, um, and I'm just going to quote you here. There's a big difference between what's not so egregious as to be in violation of policy and what makes for reasonable good faith discussion on a healthy community. And I, I found that interesting because it's this idea that there's necessarily going to be a delta of some form between the rules that we set for a community as a whole and every person's individual preference. And I wonder if you could expand a little more on that. Is, is that necessarily true? You know, even in in a smaller platform, or is it something that you think is more specific to bigger platforms when there's such a huge user base? I'm thinking about it in particular because there's been so much discussion recently of you know, sort of going to small artisanal, like back to the land platforms. Could that delta be smaller there, or is the same kind of problem going to pop up?
0: I think the problem is. Less in the smaller communities, just because you have less variance amongst the people you have there. But it seems to emerge on in every community on every platform once it reaches some size. Um, and so, unless we take the stance that people can only ever be in communities that are capped at a small size, we're going to have this problem. And I, I don't think we're ever going to go back to a world where you can only be in groups with like a hundred people. Like, there's going to be big broadcast networks. Um, there's going to be big platforms where a lot of people can interact. Yeah, this idea of like there's sort of like that bright red line you can't cross, and if you cross it, like you're off the platform. And what individuals want, I've heard this described as the margin. So like when I talk to folks in Twitter's health team, they describe this as the margin, or like you know, there's like the the really bad stuff like we'll, we'll deplatform, but so much in the middle, and. I think I maybe draw an analogy here to the offline world. Again, you'd think about like what is permissible by law and then what sort of like what are the social norms and what do people want? Um, so it's not illegal to call somebody ugly, but it's also not nice. And you may not want to be in a community where people are flinging those kinds of insults at each other. And that's similar on the platforms where like calling somebody ugly is not going to get you deplatformed. <laughs> it's not going to get your account banned. But that doesn't mean that the person you're trying to say that to wants to hear it um, or that it's like a nice thing or it's like a good thing to be saying. And I guess, again, like thinking about analogies to the offline world, because a lot of what is happening online is really just like manifestations of things that already exist in our society, but maybe are distorted and magnified by technology. Like people are not always nice to each other in the offline world either, Um, and they can be pretty nasty to each other at times uh, and some of that is just getting reflected online now. So technology is not going to solve the human problems we have but I think what's happened with the sort of consumer web scale platforms is they've allowed sort of harms and insults or abuse and harassment that bad stuff to be very, very concentrated in ways that wouldn't have been possible before these platforms existed but at the same time have not given individuals sort of defenses to protect against that Uh, and so like before social networks, before uh, we were all as online, like, sure, somebody might insult me, but it would be very difficult for like a 1000 people to come up to me within the span of an hour to insult me. But that, that's very possible online now. And so like, we need better defenses for people to protect against that.
2: So definitely one of the challenges in this space in more generally is that you know there's very limited things that the law can do in terms of outlawing or uh, preventing certain speech but maybe one role that law can play is forcing platforms to open up their services to the kinds of tools that you're uh, that you've created and I'm curious whether that would be a necessary role because obviously block party to a certain extent required cooperation from, from Twitter in order to exist, or I assume that that's, that's part of it. And we know that there are some platforms that, Aren't so keen on third-party applications on their platforms. Like uh, Facebook, recently banned the account of a developer who had made a browser extension called Unfollow Everything that sort of let people use Facebook but with an empty newsfeed. And so, you know, I'm not sure how um, how willing Facebook would be to have these kinds of tools. And on the other hand, it seems like Twitter was very receptive. It released a a blog post celebrating uh, your product, which in a way is is kind of funny because you know it's celebrating the addition of a whole bunch of features that it hadn't created made that made its service better. But um, sort of what is your experience like working with these platforms? Do you find them receptive? Because in a way you are offering something that makes the whole experience better for their users, or do you find it somewhat adversarial because you are, um, it's something that's outside of their control and not being offered by them themselves?
0: To that point about Will regulation be necessary in order to force platforms to open up so that we can build these experiences? I think one way that this could happen is platforms start to shift their philosophy and see that supporting a developer ecosystem is a boon for them and their users. From Twitter's perspective, Block Party is building a bunch of really useful product. That now Twitter doesn't have to build like they don't have to expend the engineering and product design resources to go build this, and so it's great like their users benefit, and they don't even have to do anything. And I think the platforms that think about developer ecosystem in this way, they they kind of get that this is a good thing for them. I think the most successful developer platform teams at various like platform companies, um, they'll judge themselves based on like how successful the applications are that are built on top of their platforms. And they see like it's it's something that is like helpful to them? So I think there are some companies like Twitter, we had a really good experience, and like Twitch and Discord, which also have a lot of APIs available to be able to build a moderator tools, where they're leaning in this direction already. And so I think it is possible that across the ecosystem, the platforms start to follow this this kind of change in philosophy, realizing that it's better to give users more controls like there's still some responsibility of the platforms to build in the basic safeguards but there's so much richness that can be built on top of their platforms if they open up the facebook example is kind of like the the one on the other side of the spectrum Was like it's unclear how much they will ever want to give up that control there may be some sort of like popular pressure for them to when there are clear examples of other platforms that are doing better because they've like recognized it's good for them to open their APIs. Facebook is a case where I might think that regulation is is necessary to get them to open up.
1: And just to follow up on that, is there a particular kind of regulation that you'd like to see?
0: I think it would have to look something like APIs must be open around health and safety constructs um, and then enough APIs open to be able to pull the data that's necessary to make decisions. So, when I talk about health and safety contracts, it's like being able to block people, being able to mute, being able to report. So these are things that, if they're exposed through APIs, then developers can build like much fuller experiences on top of them. Uh, but then, in order to decide whether to take those actions, you can to be able to pull information about users or content interactions. So, for example, like the things that we're building in Block Party, we have to be able to pull data like the user info, when was the account created? Uh, how many followers do they have? Do they have a profile photo? Are they verified? We have to pull like following information to be able to see the social graph. Uh, and based on this information, we can make automatic muting decisions. So I think at a minimum, it's this kind of API access of so being able to issue block mute type of calls and then being able to pull the data. I think there's more that could potentially be open up. It's not necessary, but it would be helpful. So information like whether users have their phone number verified would be really helpful to be able to make moderation decisions. Like this was a a big deal for Twitch when they were able to restrict people's chat access based on um, phone number verification to kind of like stop the hate rates that were happening. So like there's sometimes this information that platforms right now kind of keep more internal, but if it's exposed can be really helpful around moderation. Uh, But I think that's. That's kind of the minimum. Like, you don't need that much more. Um, Obviously, platforms can be more helpful if they want to open up more, Um, but that's the the minimum.
2: I want to ask you a little bit about the incentives or dynamics in this space more generally, because to my knowledge, we haven't seen an explosion of tools like Block Party, um, even though they seem kind of like a no brainer. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe you can tell me, and you know, without naming them, all of your competitors. Um, But it seems like maybe part of the problem is financial incentives in this space. Like, you know, you charge for your product, which makes total sense but on the other hand you know and you've talked about this I think in one of your blog posts that it's it's really unfortunate that the financial burden has to fall uh, on the people that are you know experiencing the externalities of products like Twitter or the the victims of abuse and so I'm curious what it is that you think is preventing a really vibrant sort of middleware or, or this kind of product whether it's sort of the technical challenges that you were just mentioning about a lack of openness from platforms that really facilitates the development of these tools, or whether it's something to do with the financial dynamics, or whether you think it's demand, or what would it take to see a lot more of these tools kind of spring up?
0: That's a great question. I think there's a few layers to it. One is the technical side, as you mentioned. So seeing more openness in platforms, I think, would foster many more of these tools to come about. Twitter is still pretty new to this, actually. Like They're working on API v2 right now, and like with API v2 are doing a big push. To support health and safety products, but this is still relatively new for them. And so I think we're kind of on the we're in the early stages of like platforms coming around to this philosophy of supporting third-party developers. The financial piece um, is an interesting question. I think it's still TBD. I think there are analogies in other spaces where it kind of feels like it's quote unquote unfair, but it still makes sense for the people that will benefit the most from certain services to pay for them. And so like one example I think about is public transit versus like private car services. Like in theory, we should all be able to take public transit and it should just work and it's like, you know, very democratic cheapest option. But there are some times when taking public transit doesn't feel safe and in order to get additional safety, you pay for a taxi to get home more safely. Um, So it's not really fair. Like you would say the government's responsibility was to like provide this service and it disproportionately affects women and children, maybe like that, you know, this kind of lack of safety. So, yeah, again, it's not fair, but still, the people who like benefit the most from it, like it's good for them to have these options, be able to pay for what they need. I think another big piece of this actually is just that the people who often are most impacted by some of these harms are not well represented in the tech industry. And specifically, I'm talking about the lack of diversity. In tech where it is very homogenous like mostly male mostly white some asian and a lot of these folks from like the kind of like demographic majority don't actually experience uh some of these harms like the harassment harms in the same way and so when you think about people wanting to solve their own problems it's just not really going to happen very often amongst this tech group i think it's pretty rare that like in my case i have both the technical background As an engineer, as well as the personal experience of dealing with harassment harms that would motivate me to try to solve this problem, like know how to go about it. But no, this sort of lack of diversity and inclusion is broader than just like amongst the builders and the founders, right? It's also amongst investors who again are a pretty homogenous bunch. (laughs) Um, and there's a lot of those folks who maybe don't want to see the problem. Like I've had very strident denials of the problem when I pitch some investors or like sometimes they can't imagine a different world, which I find ironic given the fact that they're supposed to be investing and innovating the future. But um, I think there's a lack of imagination there around like what could be possible. And they don't want to back the types of people who could build different solutions. One thing that's been kind of interesting to see is uh, other founders who are somewhat competitive or in similar spaces to Block Party raising a lot more funding than us, despite the founders being people who don't experience a problem, don't have any intuition around how to solve it. And then just kind of like blowing through all the money and not doing anything useful with it. That's really frustrating to see because in sometimes like the investors might think like, oh, like there's nothing here. Like, you know, we, we funded a company in the space and like, they didn't do anything useful with it. It's like, well, you funded the wrong people. <laughs> like they didn't know how to solve this problem. Like there's this um, I think, fallacy that like machine learning is going to solve all these problems. And I see that a lot with um, people who don't actually experience a lot of these harms thinking that like they just need to improve their machine learning algorithms and like everything will be fixed. And while machine learning can help in some content moderation contexts, it's not going to solve the totality of the problem. there's like a lot actually that is outside where it can be useful at all. But when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're like a techno solutionist that believes in the power of machine learning, you think you're just going to apply that everywhere. Um, and it's not actually going to solve the problem. So we kind of end up in this like bad cycle of like investing in the wrong types of solutions and then not seeing success. And then thinking that like, maybe there's no possible solutions here. I think that lack of diversity and inclusion, like across the board, for silicon valley is very much to blame for like how we got into the world that we're in now with all these problems and it's also creating a lot of friction around trying to solve the problems
1: i have to say i i find it um astonishing that you pitched this to people who in you know whenever you were pitching this this late hour uh still didn't believe that this kind of thing was a problem
0: <laughs> that's hard to imagine I, I mean it's incredible it's like 2020, 2020 2021 2022 people being like it's not really that big a problem though right like the platforms are solving this right it's like it's basically a solved problem with machine learning right and i just had to sit there being like i don't know what world you're living in but we are not seeing the same realities
1: yeah I would like to live in that world. Um, I do want to go but make sure we go back to the machine learning issue, but before we do that, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your advocacy for diversity and tech because that's something that I know you've had a lot of personal experience with in terms of quantifying the the lack of diversity or or identifying the the lack of numbers on diversity and speaking up about it. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: It felt so hypocritical to me as an engineer who worked in companies that were very data-driven. That Like is very much the ethos of the industry, that you want to measure everything. You always have your metrics. You do A-B testing. Everything is very data-driven. And around diversity, we had no data. Um, So no idea how we're doing across the industry within particular companies. Um, We'd see a lot of people, a lot of companies talking about how supportive they were of diversity efforts and know touting their leave policies or like that they were sponsoring so many people to go to this or that conference but really nothing around like sort of success metrics and the idea behind like getting some data was just to understand like where are we actually and what is that baseline that we're starting from and are any of the things that we're doing actually helping and moving the numbers the very disappointing thing to see in the last i don't know how many years it's been like close to a decade now, since I began that work, Um, the numbers have not moved very much. And I don't know, sometimes when I look at the work I've done in this space, it's just, it's very sad. Um, So I wish, you know, things would be different, but at least we know that things are not moving in the right direction and whatever efforts we're going to put in place, like have to be a lot stronger than what we've done so far. I think what a lot of this speaks to, though, is that, like the the structural issues we have that created this lack of diversity are still very much there. And people don't have incentive to change. People who are in positions of power and privilege don't want to yield those. Like, why would they? Um, like, if you are sitting at the top, why would you want to yield that spot to anybody else? So that's kind of where we are in terms of like diversity. When I look at it, um, it is interesting for me to have shifted from being an engineer and an employee at um, different companies and now be in a founder role where the data for founders is like even more bleak. I think the, the latest data came out about fund, VC funding, venture capital funding going to female founders is like 2% of total funding. It's, it's just, it's very bleak. It doesn't seem to help to put the spotlight on this. like it's good to know how bad it is. Um, but you know, we don't seem to be making very much headway right now and it's it's not good. So
1: I'm curious, you know that that's a pretty justifiably bleak picture. At the same time, I feel like often you know we talk to people who worked for tech companies and that gives them insight into you know what's going wrong, but also some sympathy into how hard these problems are to fix. Is that true for you? Or does it make you sort of more frustrated at all this inaction because you've been on the inside and you can see areas where things could be made better um, from, you know, diversity to the specifics of how the technology works and they're just not being fixed?
0: It's frustrating in a few ways where I think there are obvious things that people could do if they just wanted to try a little bit harder. So like more, this is just like a list of like very random tactics, like more standardized interview processes, more standardized promotion processes. Um, There's like really basic things that can be done there. And then, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to also see what the impact is of lack of diversity and representation on the sorts of products that get built. I think harassment is a very clear example um, of a situation where the people who were early didn't necessarily prioritize building safeguards against it because they weren't to experience the problem. I think a lot about my experiences early on at Quora and Pinterest. So I worked at those companies both quite early. Quora, I joined as the second engineer, hired onto the team. And Pinterest, I joined with the company was about 10 people. Not half of us on edge, only five engineers. And by being there early, I had a really you know, disproportionate impact on some of the features that we prioritized. For example, at Quora, the first project I worked on was building the block button, because somebody was already bothering me and I wanted to give myself that like space, right? So I prioritized building it and the company absolutely built blocking earlier than it would have if I hadn't been there. And there's a lot of other decisions we would make around like what should we prioritize in the home feed uh, and recommendations where I was bringing in lived experiences and perspectives that other people didn't have because I was the only woman on the team And so that's only like one aspect of diversity, but I remember thinking like how lacking for perspective we were when I would have all the male engineers around me at the table asking me like what women want. It was like, I, I don't know, like I'm one person. I can't speak for all women. I'm trying my best. I'm glad I'm here as one woman, but I really cannot reflect the experiences of like half the world. And so it's, it's really sad sometimes to think about how much we're missing out on because we don't have these perspectives like in the rooms And sometimes you actually do have the perspectives in the rooms, but like the people who are sharing these opinions and ideas aren't respected. And so that's like the inclusion piece. So you can have diversity, you can have this representation in the rooms, but then if you ignore all the people who are trying to tell you things like that also is not very productive. So I think what bums me out a lot is like, what is this missed opportunity we have? Like we could be doing so much more. We could be building software so much more thoughtfully Um, help so many more people if we could solve these problems around diversity and inclusion in the teams that are building the software.
2: I love the superhero origin story of you being uh, harassed and and that um, causing you to develop the the block button. Uh, It it reminds me of one of my favorite Onion articles. I'm going to mess up the headline, um, but it was something like, Facebook refuses to fix fake news problems says pedophile Mark Zuckerberg or something along those lines. Like We should all just target founders uh, with the problems on their products and uh, then they might get around to to fixing them. But um, that strategy aside I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the underlying tech of of your product and why these you know why it isn't just simply that Mark Zuckerberg likes fake news that that Facebook hasn't fixed fake news or why it isn't just that these these companies turn a blind eye to hate speech or harassment um, even though they do and they have a history of doing that there are also technical problems and so one thing we know from content moderation experience is that the artificial intelligence tools are really pretty bad at detecting things like hate speech and harassment and bullying in particular because they can be uh, so context specific. So while you know AI might get pretty good at recognizing uh, nudity, for example, uh, it can be a lot harder to detect when someone is just joking with a friend or when they're bullying them. Uh, and I'm so curious about how your product works in terms of thinking about the problem of false positives and false negatives in picking up the things that you quarantine and How how you think about that problem as you're building your product?
0: The first observation is that when people scope the problem so narrowly, as we just want to see if a piece of content is good or bad, that is already like limiting the solution set because it's a much broader problem. It's not the problem is not I want you to label each piece of content with like likelihood of toxicity or bullying. It's like the sort of user experience of like, I don't want to see this or I want to deal with it on my own time. I want to have more control over this experience and it's happening in a sort of contextual relationship, for example. And so I think that is one of the core problems that plagues a lot of these platform companies because, and also like third party solutions is that they, they scope the problem too narrowly. And when you think more holistically about the product, there's different changes you can make. So this is just like one very specific example. Like we saw a bunch of spam being posted on comments, posting in comments on popular pins at Pinterest when I was there. And one of the things we did was like we just made the comment box a lot less prominent. It was like you can you could solve some of these problems with like UI changes or like product changes. Like maybe you don't allow everybody to post comments instead of just trying to like score every comment for likelihood of spam. So there's like product solutions that you can apply. Obviously there's once you get past that, like a role for machine learning potentially to play in flagging some types of content. But going back to this idea of like the product piece, the way we've designed Block Party, where you can set your filters and then filter content goes into another folder to review. It's very robust to having errors of like, it's depending on how you want to f- define your positives and negatives, but like it's very robust, like over filtering where you could, you could intentionally set your filters to be very strict And then say like anything that gets over-filtered, I can still go see it later. It doesn't mean that like I'm not going to see it. It's just like maybe on time delay and I can respond to anything I need to respond to. And like, that's fine. Like you can very willingly accept that over-filtering false positives. But that construction of it is pretty important. Like if we had designed the consequences for the filtering decision to be much stronger, where, for example, like if it gets filtered, so you never see it, then like you... Have a much higher bar to reach in terms of the accuracy of the filtering. So if you're just hiding it so people have no idea it exists, then you, know, you better get that right. Or if the action is very strong to say like um, you're going to block everybody who doesn't pass the filterings then like again you like really better make sure that that's right. So thinking about the consequences of these like scoring decisions is important as well. Uh, and I think people often don't think about it. They're just so fixated on like. How accurate is this classifier when you can solve some of these issues with more holistic product thinking?
1: I think one good example of that might be uh, what you've written about what you call the the dragnet effect and how BlockParty works around that. Could you talk about that a little?
0: So there's a number of other uh, sort of like tools in this space that are mass blocking tools, or they help you to like very efficiently block a lot of people at once or subscribe to a list um, that already has a bunch of people blocked. And this can be helpful in like some situations where you just want to like ensure that anybody who's potentially bad like can't reach you. But it also has this dragnet effect of like people who don't, who shouldn't have been blocked getting blocked. Um, and it can kind of be propagated through a network. Let's say if you have like a block list that a lot of people have subscribed to. So if let's say you, um, happen to piss off the maintainer of this block list by posting like a slightly snarky comment or whatever it was like you happen to like piss them off and they add you to this block list that like 60,000 people have subscribed to now you're blocked by all of these people and like maybe that snarky comment you made like wasn't a nice one and you shouldn't have posted that but does it merit you now being blocked by like 60,000 people not being able to see their content uh, not being able to interact with them in a fairly public space sometimes with these dragnet effects like people who shouldn't necessarily have been blocked, like are suddenly cut out of all the conversation, can't participate in anything anymore. There's also some uh, kind of deliberately evil cases of people who maintain these block lists slipping in people um, to the block list that they personally don't like or want to be blocked. They may come from certain demographic groups. This has happened to trans folks uh, where they've gotten put on these block lists that people are subscribed to, not knowing exactly like all the specifics of how they're maintained. And then, you know, these folks who've been caught in the dragnet effect, again, like can't access the network anymore. I guess one of the broader points here is all these tools that you build can be used in different ways. and They can be abused as well. And that is like a very central challenge of thinking through whatever technology you build, like how can it be abused? Like even if it's anti-abuse software, it can be abused as well. And how do you put in the safeguards for that?
2: Yeah, so I want to ask a little bit more about the way that anti-abuse software could, you know, the, the trade-offs involved in even creating something th- that's anti-abuse. And it seems to me that something like Block Party uh, could be really good for solving some problems and, you know, might have trade-offs for other problems. And it seems like harassment is an obvious use case for something like this because it's a personalized harm and the user has a strong incentive to do the kind of moderation involved because it betters their own experience. Um, but then other content moderation problems like misinformation or certain kinds of extremism, uh, that's generally the kind of content that proliferates within communities that enjoy or seek out that kind of content and are less likely to block it themselves. And then there's sort of other examples where you, know, you might think about places where giving users control over you know who can reply or you know things like that might limit the ability to reply to things like misinformation and and do counter speech. And so I'm curious whether you have any thoughts about how giving users more control over the online experience can be really, really beneficial and useful for counteracting some harms, but could create other problems for other harms and whether that's something that you've thought about, because it's obviously something that's uh, coming up a lot when we think about how to move forward in this content moderation space, whether giving all the powers back to users is going to be the panacea that a lot of people seem to think it will be.
0: Yeah, I think you've already pointed to some of the issues that we've grappled with. Um, the ability to reply to tweets is very important for like, fact-checking and misinformation. Uh, that's one that's like, already been very clearly seen and you actually see this reflected in some of Twitter's own product design where you can limit replies to tweets, but you can't turn off quote tweets. So there's still some mechanism for people to be able to kind of like fact check. And I think this has been a problem that like Facebook has seen on pages where there are some anti-harassment tools or kind of moderation tools, or you can block certain terms um, from being posted. And you can imagine that being used for disallowing certain slurs or insults be posted, but it can also be used to control the conversation. So like, if you don't want to talk about certain subjects, like you don't want people to be able to talk about like women's rights, reproductive rights or something, you could disallow all of those keywords and shut down the conversation. Um So I think there is that tension between sort of like individual tooling and user control, um, particularly around anti-harassment and The broader ecosystem issues of misinformation, disinformation, like censorship, those kinds of questions. And I think the misinformation challenges are much harder because they are ecosystem type of challenges. And like, as you were pointing out, like with harassment, people have a personal pain, like they will seek out a solution. Um, But misinformation is a harm that gets accrued to the population. And the individuals don't have any particular incentive to seek something different out. Uh, So I think the solutions there are going to look pretty different. So even though people often group together these different online harms, like misinformation and abuse, they take very different forms. And I think the solutions will take different forms as well.
1: So to close out, I wanted to ask you a, a last question about what the next thing you'd like to see in this space is. And what's the next thing on your wish list that you wish platforms or someone else would build to Make the online experience better for people.
0: I want platforms to open up their APIs a lot more and enable other folks like developers, individual users to have much more control over their experience instead of trying to lock in that control but also still deprioritizing any solutions. Um, and ultimately, I just want you know these problems to get solved and be able to make some headway against them, and so I want us to be taking steps. In that direction. I think that's a good rallying
1: cry. Tracy, thank you so much (laughs) for coming
0: on. Yeah, thank you.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.